And I want to begin, strangely enough, with, uh, with an account from part of my own childhood. As many of you, I, I went through swimming lessons. Uh, my parents thought it a basic life skill that everyone ought to learn, and, and so we did. And, and it really caught inside of me. I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. And so I, I went the full track, bronze cross, Bronze Medallion, National Life Saving Service, the, the whole package right up the ladder. At, at the higher end of that ladder, one of the things that they want you to learn is how to enter the water at height so that you don't hurt yourself. Just on the off chance that someday you had to jump out of a helicopter into the water. I don't know what the possibility was. But the way that you learn to do that is by going to one of the pools where Olympic high divers train. And so for us, we went to the Etobicoke Olympium. And I learned something there that I didn't know, that they have a way of making the water soft. Because as you know, if you hit that water from 10 meters and you hit it wrong, it can feel like you're hitting a concrete floor. But what they do through a series of of high-powered air jets at the bottom of the pool, they send up a blanket of air. So it feels like you're landing on a cushion of bubbles. And so as you practice entering the water at height, you're actually landing in a very soft cushion of air bubbles. One of the things we learned, though, is that if you time it right, you can actually get the person who switches the equipment on to catch you just as you're entering it and then turn it on, and it can catapult you right out of the pool. We thought that was really kind of entertaining, and so we were entertaining ourselves in that careless way, and I entered the water, and the next thing I remember was lying on the side of the deck with somebody saying, you're going to be okay. Just don't get up. Don't, don't move. Now, it struck me in that moment that, that I don't often think of myself as a person that needs to be saved. I was training to be a life saver. I still to this day don't know exactly what happened, but I know that I woke up a little bit stunned on the side of the pool. And something in my pride actually gets in the way of acknowledging that somebody saved me from something on that day. We're talking this weekend about what it means when Jesus comes to save a person. And it actually comes as kind of a surprise for many people, because I think by and large, that's not language that we use to describe ourselves. We don't think of ourselves as people who need to be saved. In fact, throughout this series that we titled Navigating Life, we've been learning about this this illusion of control, this feeling that we have that we should be in charge of everything, that we ought to be able to orchestrate the circumstances of our lives to our own benefit. Really, it is an illusion, and the first time something catastrophic and unexpected happens, the whole illusion comes crumbling down. And that's really the title of of the series, that we're trying to navigate life when so much of life just happens to us. We didn't plan for it. And so this weekend, we want to talk about the most important thing that can happen in life, the most important thing that can happen to anybody, and that is grace, that grace happens. And I want to talk to you about what grace is But more importantly, I want to give you a chance to experience it yourselves. And that's 
That's kind of what this morning is all about. It's rooted in a really important statement from the Bible, not the one that we've been learning over the past five weeks, though I'll ask you to, to do a mental rehearsal of that one from Romans 8 to 28. But it's this verse from Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Here the Apostle Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Maybe you've noticed that behind me on the stage this morning, we've got, uh, we've got a bunch of ladders. I was afraid maybe when we do this, somebody would accuse us, say you've become the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, yeah that was a groaner just for the room. Uh, what I really want to do is is talk to you about the two different approaches to achieving purpose in life, or, or to use Scripture's language, to saving ourselves in life. Two different ways. One of them is the way of performance. This is what the Bible calls works. The other is the way of grace. They are the two ways available of saving ourselves. Uh, but let's camp out just for a minute on that word save again, because it's become such a cliche that it's probably lost all of the meaning that the Bible attached to it. To be saved in the Bible meant to be healed, to be delivered, to be restored, to be rescued, to lead a life of purpose and significance, of weight and value, not hobbled by guilt and regret. And I need that. And you need that. We need to be healed of our aloneness, don't we? After this 16 months of isolation, we need to be healed of guilt and regret and and fear and and the fear of death itself and the fear that, that life doesn't have any meaning, that there's no real purpose to it. We all need that. And so one of the most important ways that we'll try and heal ourselves is to drive ourselves in the direction of escalating, of climbing ever higher through life in a ladder of success in order to impress other people. And so we convince ourselves that we're significant. Why are we significant? Because look how high we have climbed. There's this fabulous line in a movie that you've, you may have seen. It, it's actually a few decades old now. But in the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters is an Olympic sprinter. He's driven, he's just, he's haunted by his need to be successful. And this is what he says, and I quote, When the gun goes off, I'll raise my eyes and I'll look down the quarter, and I know I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. What a hard way to live. What if you don't win? What if you do win, but it kind of wears off? It always wears off, right? We keep on trying to justify ourselves because it doesn't last. And so we give ourselves these ladders, and there's always another rung to climb. And we give our kids little ladders, and we say, well, just keep climbing higher and higher. We try and satisfy these greedy little egos inside of us that are always wanting something more. There was research done on a question. Uh, Here it was. The question was, do you consider yourself to be an important person? In 1950, 
12% of everybody in North America considered themselves to be an important person. Now let's do this. You turn to the person next to you or somebody around you and just try and guess. Do you think that number went up or went down from 1950 until today? Just take a quick guess. Up or down? I'm seeing lots of thumbs up in the room. and You're absolutely right. By 2005, here's the answer. 80% of people surveyed considered themselves to be important people. We want to be important. We want our kids to be important. That's why we give them these little ladders. And we say, climb higher, get good grades, study hard, work hard, get into a good school, make mom and dad proud. You know, 1966, 19% of high school students had a GPA of an A or an A minus, 19%. By 2013, the number is 63%. It's more than double. It's up by like 150%. But is the happiness of students up 150%? No way. Feel like a failure, too many of them say. But I can't let anybody see that. I'm afraid of being rejected, but I can't let anybody know that I'm afraid. I'm tired. But I can't feel like I can tell, or I don't feel like I can tell anyone that I'm tired. Rather than a a pathway to freedom, the latter has a tendency to enslave us. Because whatever I put up there on the top, whatever is at the summit of the ladder, is the thing that I devote my life to. And I get enslaved to what's at the top. That's where all kinds of addictions come from and problems come from. The Bible's diagnosis of that condition. The Bible says the real problem with the latter is what it calls sin. Now, another word that just doesn't have a lot of currency anymore in our day. See, the idea of sin is not so much that you've broken some rule or you've done something that for some weird religious reason you should not do. What sin is really is putting the wrong thing on top of the ladder or climbing the wrong ladder entirely. Tim Keller put it like this, and he's absolutely right. Sin sometimes means taking a good thing, like being successful or a relationship, whatever, taking a good thing, but making it the ultimate thing. When you do that, it will destroy you because you you become enslaved to it. One of the problems with with what the Bible calls sin is that it it gets inside of us. It's it's insidious. We're not even aware that it's there. It, It makes me mess stuff up and mess other people up, and I don't even know that it's going on. Sin happens. There's arrogance and pride and greed and self-centeredness and deception. It's all there inside of me, and I don't even know it. That's why in the Bible, in the Psalms, the psalmist put it like this in Psalm 19 and verse 12. said, but who can discern their own errors? I don't even know it's in there. Forgive my hidden faults. You probably know one of the weirdest things about sin is that I can be peculiarly, particularly aware of yours while being completely blind to mine. There's this old story. It's kind of a 
kind of a goofy one, but it illustrates the idea. I have a dream. In this dream, I go to heaven. In heaven, there are these long, vast hallways, and they're all covered with, well, they look like clocks. And underneath each clock is the name of a person. And I asked St. Peter, I said, Peter, what is this all about? He said, those, those are actually sinometers. Sinometers. Everybody has one, and every time they sin, it ticks. So I walk around, I'm looking for everybody's sinometer. There's Pastor Sheldon's. Every 30 seconds, tick, tick. And I keep going down the hall. There's Rochelle's. Every 20 seconds, tick, tick, tick. Uh, there's my wife's. I'm in trouble for that one later, you know. And I look for mine, and I can't find mine anywhere. And I say, Peter, does this really mean what I think it means? Does it mean I finally got this monkey off my back? I finally stopped sinning. He says, are you kidding me? We keep yours in the office. We're using it as a fan. Psalm 19, who can discern their hidden faults? Who knows? I mean, who has any idea? I see it in other people. I, I don't see it in me. So again, sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting the wrong thing at the top of the ladder. It's climbing the wrong ladder entirely. It's this irreversible, inevitable, unconquerable, very often indiscernible tendency to foul up my life. And in so doing, also to foul up the lives of others. And every once in a while, I get a little glimpse of it. But for the most part, I don't even remember how many times I've lied or stretched the truth and nobody noticed, or I think nobody noticed. And then I think, but there is a God, a holy God, a perfect God. And one day I'm going to stand before him and he knows it all. Well, this is a problem, isn't it? One of the human tendencies is to, is to think, well, I can handle it. I can take care of it. I can't take care of that. This is what Paul is getting at when he says that we are not saved by works. You know, in his day, for a lot of people, for most people, the ladder that they were climbing was actually a religious one. Even in our day, a lot of people still think, you know, there's good people and there's bad people. And I know I'm not perfect, but I'm probably one of the good ones. Well, how do you know? I, I go to church. I read the Bible sometimes. I, I give money sometimes. And after all, I'm not nearly as bad as these people over here who don't go to church and don't read the Bible and, and aren't generous. We compare to people, we compare ourselves to people who we think are worse. They're one of the bad people, so I'm, I'm one of the better people. I'm doing okay. I'm good stock. I'm, I'm at least halfway up the ladder. In fact, one of the things that, that we do a lot, especially in this country, is to say, well, I'm a good person because I embrace the right 
ideology, a more progressive, a more modern understanding of the world. I'm, I'm opposed to intolerance. I'm opposed to bigotry, to militarism, to injustice and corporate greed. But there's bad people out there who promote all those things. I'm doing pretty well. None of that, none of it changes the tendency that I have to foul things up. Here's something else. A lot of people in the GTA, I think we have faith that somehow technology is going to save us. That we're just going to get smart enough. Have enough good technology, enough great apps, and there'll be more education and more affluence and more opportunity. No one yet has invented an app that will correct the human tendency to foul up our lives. An app to prevent us from lying or cheating or deceiving. An app that prevents greed or betrayal. There's no app for those. Into all of this mess, into all of that darkness, comes Jesus. And comes that marvelous word, grace. So let's talk about grace. This is not works. This is not saving yourselves. This is not being good enough. This is not pretending that sin is not an issue in our lives. Grace is not a ladder that we climb up. Grace is a ladder that Jesus came down. Now he says that the offer of being forgiven, being given a new start, of having a purpose, having a hope beyond death, it comes to you, but it comes as a gift, a free gift. In fact, there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's no, there's no rung on the ladder that, that you need to achieve to find it. It's not on the ladder at all. And Jesus would tell all kinds of stories about this. He loved telling grace stories. One of them is found a, a number of times in the Bible. And I want to retell that story. This is an account from a book that I love by by Philip Yancey. The book was called What's So Amazing About Grace? And I'm going to tell it using, using Yancey's words. He writes, One of Jesus' stories about grace made it into three different versions in the gospel. But my favorite version, Yancey says, appeared in another source entirely, the Boston Globe's account in June 1990 of a most unusual wedding banquet. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements that they liked. They both had expensive tastes, and the bill came to 13000 After leaving a check for half the amount as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through the book of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm not sure, he said. It's it's a big commitment. Maybe, Maybe we should put our plans on hold. Let's just think about this a little bit longer. And when the angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, 
the events manager, she couldn't have been more sympathetic, more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said. She told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're entitled only to 10% back, $1,300. And so you have two options. You forfeit the rest, or you can go ahead with the banquet. I'm, I'm sorry, darling, I, I really am. It seemed kind of crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but, but a blowout. Ten years before, the same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. Now she'd gotten herself back on her feet. She'd found a good job. She'd put aside a sizable nest egg. And she had the wild notion of using her, her down payment, her savings, to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night out on the town. And so it was in June of 1990 that the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston had a party such as, as it had never seen before. The hostess, <laughs> I love this, the hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom, she said. <laughs> and sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. And that warm summer night, people who are used to peeling or to peeling half-gnawed pizza off of cardboard boxes dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. And Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies and vagrants and addicts took one night off from hard life on the sidewalks and instead they sipped champagne and ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies late into the night. Jesus would tell stories like that. The kingdom of God is like a banquet, he said. And people who haven't earned it, who haven't climbed the ladder, they're going to be there. Why? Because of grace. Because you cannot, by all of your achievements, by all of your works, however you compare yourself to others, you cannot justify your own existence, but you don't have to. This is grace. Here's how Paul put it, Romans 8, 33. It is God who justifies, Paul said. Who is it who condemns? No one. And we're told that the primary vehicle through which grace comes to the world is not when we climb up the ladder, but when Jesus comes down. In fact, he doesn't just come down a step or two. He gets to the very bottom. And when you think he can't go any lower, he goes to the cross. And people sometimes wonder, well, what is this whole cross thing about? I want to spend just the last few minutes in the message giving you a chance to to appreciate it again and to respond to the cross. I'm going to talk about the two dynamics of the cross, and maybe the easiest way to remember them is, is to picture it in your mind. You know the cross has a vertical beam 
and it has a horizontal beam. Think first about the vertical beam of the cross. A reminder that we all exist, whether we acknowledge it or not, in relationship to God. And one of the things that the Bible says is that because I am riddled by sin, I know that's language we don't like to use, but it doesn't make it any less true. I'm a cheater, I'm a liar, I'm a gossip, I'm in, I'm in poor standing with God. It's kind of like a debt that I owe and it's one that I cannot pay. I was at Starbucks a while ago. Actually, I'm at Starbucks a lot, but the story that I'm telling is about when I was at Starbucks a while ago and I ordered my drink of choice, Grande Americano, and I went to pay for it and I realized I didn't have my wallet, which is okay because Starbucks, there's an app for that but I didn't have my phone. And so I said to the person behind the counter, Listen, I'm, I'm embarrassed, I'm so sorry, I've, I've left my wallet and my phone. I'm a pastor, I mean, I'm good for it. I'll, I can go out to my car and come back. And she said, it, it's okay. You don't have to pay for this one. It's on the house. Isn't that a great expression? It's on the house. Now, that didn't mean it was free. I mean, it was free for me, but somebody had to pay for it. Who was going to pay for it? Starbucks was going to pay for it. They had to pay for the beans. They had to pay for the labor. And Starbucks was going to do it for me for no reason at all. They didn't get anything out of it except perhaps this wonderful promotional story that I'm telling to hundreds of people this weekend. But imagine... I go back to the same Starbucks the next day and order another cup of coffee and say, you know what, I can't pay for this one either. And I do the same thing the next day and the next, and every day for a year, 365 cups of coffee. And every day for a decade, 3,600 or so. Let's leave the world of the barista and think about sin for just a minute. And again, I understand, not a popular topic countercultural, but even though we don't like to think about it, let's, let's acknowledge that at least it's a reality. And you can't talk about being saved until you talk about what you're being saved from. And every once in a while, the spotlight catches us. And when we get caught, we recognize it. What does your sinometer look like? How often do you think its clock is ticking? psychologist, a man named William Backus, he says in one study that the average person practices deceit in one way or another, words, body language, and outright lie. The average person practices deception 200 times every day. And that's just one dimension of distortion of sin. I don't know how accurate that is, but let's say it's way overblown. Let's give ourselves a break. Let's say that it's overblown by a factor of 10. Okay? And you sin just 20 times a day in that way. Well, let's say it's overblown by a factor of 20, and, and you sin just 10 times a day. 3,650 times a year. 36,000 sins a decade. Let's say you live to be 70 years old, but we're going to cut you slack for the first decade before the the age of accountability. That's still over 200,000 sins. 
just in that one small area of life. And they're all there when I stand before God. And the reality is actually worse because because sins are not really just acts that I do. It's like a disease, an infestation inside of me, like a stain. And it just it messes everything up. And how am I going to stand before a holy, perfect, righteous, beautiful, majestic God? 200,000 sins. See, the vertical beam of the cross means I owe a debt that I cannot pay. But it's also going to mean that Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. The wages of sin is death, Scripture says, but he took my place and he paid the price and I'll never fully understand how. But if you think for a second about the horizontal beam of the cross, maybe you get a mental picture of Jesus there, arms outstretched in love for the world. Stories that we love more than any other stories, are they not the stories of sacrifice, of sacrificial love? When somebody loves another person enough to to sacrifice deeply for them, even, even to die for them. The great stories that are told in the human race are those kinds of stories. Jesus put it this way a long time ago in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. We love those stories. Think about those stories. You, you probably know lots of them. Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks, a Christ-like figure, not because of his behavior, but because he's willing to die for a private who never merited his sacrifice. Or maybe you've read the book, Les Miserables, Probably not, it's about this thick. So you saw the movie anyway. And you know the story revolves around Jean Valjean, someone who was sinned against, but, but somebody who chose sin in response and descends into darkness. And there at the bottom, in a blinding act of grace, a pastor, a bishop, when he stands accused, Valjean, when he should have been locked away for his thievery, takes the stolen goods and makes a gift to them and says, these are, not, these are not acts of robbery. These are gifts. And to that pile that you've taken, take these also. And he reaches for these costly candlesticks and he says, now I have bought your soul for God. You live for God. The other character in that story, curiously, is a man named Inspector Javert. He's just trying to climb the ladder. For him, it's the moral ladder. Overwhelmed by pride and ego, in the end, he dies in despair. Unable to reconcile the grace that saved Valjean with his own failing efforts to climb the ladder. Grace. That's the cross. He paid a debt I cannot pay. He, he died a death I cannot die. Why? For love. For it is by grace we have been saved. Ephesians 2. Through faith.
I want to ask everybody who's watching in whatever room that you're watching this message from, whatever the date on the calendar, it may not be today, June 2021, but whoever's listening, the ultimate question of life, the ultimate decision is this. Have you received grace? Have you put your faith in the vehicle through which grace has come into the world? Have you placed your life in the hands of Jesus? Receiving grace is, it's just so different from anything else in the world. It's different from receiving honors. And I know we live in a society where everybody is trying to climb the ladder in order to receive and to win honors. It's been a long time since we've had a commencement service live and in person, but we've attended some virtual ones. And you look through the program, because they still send you the electronic program, and you, you notice, and I think it's been this way forever, that in the list of graduates, there's always some that have an asterisk beside them. The asterisk, it means they graduated with honors. Summa cum laude, magna cum laude. Nobody goes to heaven with honors. It's not summa cum laude. It's sola cum Jesu. Only with Jesus. So this whole series, everything we've talked about when it comes to navigating life and all of its challenges, it comes down to this question. And this really is why we're here as a church. It's to help people understand Jesus, to, to meet him in person, to be delivered and rescued from the tendency that we have to foul things up. And I have to tell you that the Bible is just, it is crystal clear on this. You cannot be good enough. You cannot try hard enough. You cannot climb high enough. You cannot compare yourself to enough other people. You cannot give enough. You will not attend church enough. But you can humble yourself and ask. Well, ask the question that I'm going to ask of you. And here it is. Are you willing to set aside the ladder? To stop the vain climb for whatever it is that's there at the top? To say no to whatever idol it is that you're ascending to grab hold of? And are you willing to come to the cross and acknowledge your sin and confess it and say, Jesus, I, I need what you bring, what only you can bring, forgiveness and grace. I need you in my life as my master and my guide and my friend. I, I need you to deliver me from fear and anxiety, from the fear of death and loss. I, I want that hope that lives on in me knowing that I live on forever. That's grace. And grace happens. And it can happen for you right now. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. Again, this is just a moment between you and God. If there's other people with you in the room, 
Just pay no attention to them for now. This is a personal moment, a divine appointment between you and Jesus. I understand it can be hard. Pride gets in the way. Nobody nobody likes to admit that we need to be saved, but I do, and you do. And maybe you've gone to church for a long time, and it's kind of embarrassing. You feel like, man, I... I wouldn't want anyone to know I've been going all these years and I've never really been saved. I've never really asked Jesus to be my forgiver in an act of grace. doesn't matter how long you've been going to church. I want you to pray this prayer right now, whether this is your first time tuning in or it comes decades after you first began your relationship with the church, you can pray this. Jesus, I want to climb off the ladder. I've been trying to justify my life by climbing higher and higher, proving how good I am because of my achievements. I want to confess to you those parts of my life that, that are a mess and I cannot fix. And I come now to the cross. Receive Jesus as my forgiver and the Lord of my life. And I ask you to help me, God. I want to start a new life with you and walk with you as long as I'm here on earth, knowing that then I will live with you forever. Wherever you are, you can pray those words right now. And again, if you just want to keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if, if you have whispered that prayer, if you have made that commitment, I'm going to ask you to respond. We can't do that in person the way we'd like to, but, but you can signal your commitment. Here's a couple of ideas. Those of you who are watching us live, in the chat, you could just write this, hashtag, I'm saved by grace. You can do that. Or if the chat is unknown or hashtag is a foreign language to you, you can send a quick email, welcome at mcbc.org and, and just write that out. Today was the day for me. I'm saved by grace. But if you made that decision, if you prayed that prayer, and if you've never done it before, tell somebody about it. Tell somebody today. Now, God, would you bless everyone who has come to you today? God, thank you that you are a grace giving, sin forgiving, death defeating God. Thank you especially for Jesus. We pray this prayer in his name. Amen.